Hello and welcome to Voices from the Battlefield, part of Waterloo Remembered. For the last ten days you've heard historians discuss a wide range of topics about the Battle of Waterloo, but as today the 15th of June sees the start of the actual anniversary of that short campaign, the focus of the Napoleon Assist is shifting to look more and more at remembrance. Over the next four days, the centrepiece of Waterloo Remembered will unfold as we present Voices from the Battlefield. In one of the largest oral history projects ever for the Napoleonic Wars, people from around the world will come together to read 41 eyewitness accounts of the battle and its impacts. That's one for every five years since Waterloo. Some are short, others are long. Some written by men, others by women. Some by soldiers, others by civilians and they are drawn from many nationalities. Their accounts are sometimes amusing, often exciting, frequently moving, and always compelling. What follows in a sequence of 41 separate instalments over the next four days are the memories, the thoughts, and the feelings of those caught up in one of the most important events in European history. There is no better way to remember Waterloo. Our first extract is read by the Napoleonic historian Nick Lipscomb, a former artillery colonel, and comes from the memoirs of Thomas Creevey. Thomas Creevey was a Whig politician. He enjoyed a minor ministerial position in the Ministry of All Talents in 1806-7, but it was, like the ministry itself, short-lived, with the Whigs finding themselves in the political wilderness Advancement for Creevey was simply not possible. And by the time the Whigs regained power in 1830 at the expense of the Duke of Wellington's somewhat fragmented Tory party, Creevey had indeed lost his seat and he was therefore moved to a more obscure post within the Board of Ordnance. Creevey himself not a wealthy man. Indeed, the English diarist Charles Greville remarked that old Creevey is living proof that a man may be perfectly happy and exceedingly poor. I think he's the only man in society, he continued, who possesses nothing. Now, Creevey had married a, a rich widow with six children in 1802, and um, a lady by the name of Mrs. Ord, and when she fell ill uh, in 1815, Thomas took her and her six offspring to Brussels in the hope that a change in scene and air would do her good. And as they enjoyed their extended vacation, News arrived of Napoleon's escape from the Mediterranean Isle of Elba. and Within days, the city of Brussels began to fill with troops. By June, the realisation that war was imminent and that the city of Brussels was sitting precariously on the operational map caught many families, Creevey's included, somewhat unawares. Creevey and his family remained, and he and his wife and two of the Ord daughters were to enjoy the Duke, or sorry, the Duchess of Richmond's ball on the 15th of, uh, of June. Now, the first of my two accounts recalls a chance meeting between Wellington and Creevey in the Brussels Park opposite the British Ambassador's house some two to three weeks before the battle itself. Now, Wellington knew that Creevey was a Whig and he couldn't therefore resist in a quick political dig. Creevey recalled, So he began to me by observing... What a good thing it is for ministers that Grattan had made a speech in favour of the war. Grattan himself, of course, being a uh, another Whig politician who had decided to uh, distance himself, shall we say, from the Whigs 
and um, uh, support the Tories in the final struggle against Napoleon. To which Creevy replied that all ministers were always lucky in finding some unexpected support. And then I added the question was a nice one. A question of expediency, said the Duke. Granted, I replied. Quite, said the Duke. And now then, will you let me ask you, Duke, what you think you will make of it? He stopped and said in the most natural manner, By God, I think Blücher and myself can do the thing. Do you calculate, I asked, upon any desertion in Bonaparte's army? Not upon a man, he said, from the colonel to the private in a regiment, both inclusive. We may pick up a marshal or two, perhaps, but not worth a damn. Well, do you reckon, I asked, upon any support from the French king's troops at a lost? This is a French king, Louis Eighteenth, of course, uh, who in fact was with his guard some 15 miles west of Brussels. Oh, said Wellington, don't mention such fellows. No, I think Blucher and I can do the business. And then, seeing a private soldier of one of our infantry regiments enter the park, gaping at the statues and images, there, he said, pointing at the soldier, it all depends on that article, whether we do the business or not. Give me enough of it, and I am sure. Well, my second account is the day after the battle, at about 11 o'clock in the morning. And Creevy picks up the story. About 11 o'clock, upon going out again, I heard a report that the Duke was in Brussels, and I went from curiosity to see whether there was any appearance of him or any of his staff at his residence in the park. As I approached, I saw people collected in the street about the house, and when I got amongst them, the first thing I saw was the Duke upstairs, alone at his window. Upon his recognising me, he immediately beckoned to me with his finger to come up. I met Lord Arthur Hill in the ante-room below, who, after shaking hands and congratulation, told me I could not go up to the Duke, as he was then occupied in writing his dispatch. But as I had been invited, I of course proceeded. The first thing I did, of course, was to put out my hand and congratulate him upon his victory. He made a variety of observations in his short, natural, blunt way, but with the greatest gravity all the time, and without the least approach to anything like triumph or joy. It has been a damned serious business, he said. Blucher and I have lost 30,000 men. It has been a damn nice thing. The nearest run thing you ever saw in your life. Blucher lost 14,000 on Friday night and got so damnably licked I could not find him on Saturday morning. So I was obliged to fall back to keep up my communications with him. Then, as he walked about, he praised greatly those guards who kept the farm, meaning Hougamont, of course, against the repeated attacks of the French. And then he praised all our troops, uttering repeated expressions of astonishment at our men's courage. He repeated so often, it's being so nice a thing, so nearly run a thing, that I asked him if the French had fought better than he had ever seen them do before. No, he said, they've always fought the same since I first saw them at Vimera. Then he said, 
by God, I don't think it would have done if I had not been there. Now these are two very important accounts, very personal accounts, that tell us a lot about the Duke of Wellington and his state of mind both before and after this epic battle. They are also a first-class barometer of the complex nature of Wellington the man. They demonstrate arrogance, confidence, compassion, fairness and humility, and as such they are an important part of the remembrance of Waterloo. That was the Napoleonic historian Nick Lipscomb reading from the memoirs of Thomas Creevey. You can find out more about Colonel Lipscomb's work, including his acclaimed series of books, at www.nick-lipscomb.net. Stay tuned to The Napoleonicist, where more instalments of the Voices from the Battlefield series will be released throughout the day.